Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. T.S. Eliot wrote in 1934, Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? He might have written those words yesterday. Certainly we've never had more knowledge, more information, and seemingly less wisdom than we do today. What is the connection? How is it that the more we know, the less we seem to understand and the less we seem to be able to clearly and logically process it? Does the fault lie in the technology, the speed at which information comes at us, or an evolutionary limitation to process that has simply not caught up with modernity? Or is it simply fear of the new and fear of the future? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Michael Patrick Lynch. Michael Lynch is a writer and professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut, where he directs the Humanities Institute. He's the author of seven previous books, including most recently In Praise of Reason. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here today to talk about his latest, The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data. Michael Patrick Lynch, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. This fear of, of too much knowledge, too much information, I mean, it's something that, that goes back even to Socrates, who was concerned about the whole idea of writing, that somehow it was going to make us remember less and, and cause us to, to not be as effective in reasoning. Talk about this in terms of the historical roots of this, this pro potential problem. Well, you're right that... Uh it's an old worry, going back to Socrates and no doubt before him, that uh, various changes in technology, particularly changes having to do with how we process, uh, consume, and distribute information, uh, can limit or otherwise dull some of our abilities or senses. Uh, Socrates was worried about the fact that if you lost the oral tradition, uh, then you limited people, uh, people's ability to remember and perhaps analyze information. Descartes was worried, another philosopher, the French mathematician and philosopher, was worried, as were many figures in the Enlightenment, that the prevalence of published books uh, was uh, just sowing more bad information uh, and giving people access to more bad information, not just good information. So the worry that people, uh, people have had this worry for a long time, and that's a really important point to begin with, because I think that while there is uh, something deeply right about some of these worries, it's also uh, a mistake to think that it's the technology itself, like the printed word, or the ability to uh, write uh, in the first place. Uh, it's the technology, it's not the technology itself that really is the fundamental worry. When we worry about, uh, as I do, uh, how we're processing information now and how we're learn knowing th uh, things now, I think the real worry lies with us. When I talk about the Internet of Us, I think it's not the Internet per se that's the problem. Mm -hmm. It's us. So to give you an analogy with a different type of technology, cars, for example, are something that uh, all of us or most of us use quite a bit. I certainly do. And the love affair that Americans have had with a car have, has resulted in a lot of interesting and in some ways really great changes. People have been freed up to, uh, to explore new parts of the world in ways they weren't able to before. Um, but obviously, the automobile has also brought with it, and our love affair with it, has brought with it lots of problems. And technology is like that. 
human beings, when they find a tool that works really well, tend to overvalue that tool. And that's not a problem with the tool per se, but it is a problem with our uh, penchant for overvaluing one way of getting us where we want to go, to go back to the car analogy, and sometimes forgetting that there are other ways to get where we want to go that have different values and uh, different features and different pluses and minuses that go with them. How much does that have to do with human adaptation, that we tend to overvalue the new, and then we become complacent about the new, and then we're looking for the next new thing? I think it has a, that's an excellent point, and I think it has a lot to do with how human beings are uh, structured and hardwired, and how our particular, as well as how our particular culture is uh, Organized. I think our the culture that you and I live in, and that our list, the listeners live in, I think are, is a culture that very much um, wants to move to the next new thing, and that is often great about it. I think that's amazing. That's how we innovate. That's how we change. That's fantastic in many many ways. But sometimes what it does is it gets us to, as I said, fall in love with particular ways of doing things and get us to ignore uh, other things that uh, we might. Uh, Value. So to think about what I'm talking about in the book, one of the ways right now, the way in which I think most of us form our beliefs and come to know things, uh, more often than not, about almost any topic, is by Googling it. Googling has become uh, the go-to default way of accessing information. I use it every day. All of us use it many times per day to go to talk, uh, whether we're thinking about philosophy, trying to figure out what a famous philosopher had said, or whether we're fact-checking somebody, uh, something uh, somebody said at a dinner party where we raised our eyebrows and we're like, is that really true? And we all pull out our smartphones to see whether that's the case. But, um, and that's, that is giving us access to that the, the internet uh, and information technology in general has through means like Google, and I don't mean to just pick on Google on, on any of the search mm-hmm. browsers that we use, has given us uh, access to a tremendous amount of information. Um, but when we, um, by treating that source as a default uh, source, we are increasingly sort of integrating it into our lives. We're integrating it by wearing it, right? By wearing, um, you know, uh, the, my smart my smartwatch, by carrying my phone around in my pocket, uh, by uh, in fact using uh, almost any device that we use today is, or, or many of them from our card or refrigerators have um, a digital interface that gives us information and gives that device information. By integrating that. Uh, these digital interfaces more and more into our into our way of life. What what's happening is we're not we're we're becoming more part of the internet ourselves. We are now becoming our form of life has become such that we are not even noticing the way in which we're uh, we're pulling in information like this all the time. And that has meant that where we used to say, for example, that seeing is believing, now we think that Googling is believing. And that um, is something that we need to pause and reflect on to think about the changes that that's actually bringing to us. But but Google in that sense is merely an intermediary. Once we Google something and then proceed to look for the information, 
isn't it really about being more discriminatory with respect to where that information comes from? If Google gives us a number of search results, and one may be the New York Public Library or the New York Times or what have you, and another result is for some obscure source somewhere, that, that tells us something as well. I mean, Google is simply the intermediary in this equation. Exactly. Um, so when I talk about Google knowing in the book, I don't mean just, uh, just to be clear, I don't mean just uh, knowing uh, things by uh, search, but uh, knowing things uh, in the way that we do by all the sources of uh, digital interfacing that we enjoy. But to, report, uh, to, re to respond to your, this uh, very good question or point, um, let me, let's talk, think a little bit about what happens when we do actually um, search on the Internet. A couple points to keep in mind. First, you're exactly right that Google or any other search engine is essentially, uh, as you put it, an intermediary. Uh, one way of thinking about it is that when we confront uh, the massive information on the Internet, what we're actually, it's, it's analogous to confronting a room of people that are shouting for our attention. There's all these people that are giving information out all the time, people and uh, organizations. What Google allows us to do is to pick through the, the various voices in the room and latch on to one particular voice that seems to be saying something that's relevant to our interest at the moment. But it's also important to keep in mind that while that's, that's what's in a sense going on, how that gets done actually matters to how we, uh, what sorts of information we end up acquiring. Two examples. One, um, when you do, let's say, Google something like, for example, um, if you Googled uh, how did the dinosaurs uh, really go out of existence or analogous sorts of or similar sorts of questions, one of the things that you'll find is that under some permutations of that question, you can, your readers can do it right now, uh, one of the links that will come up very highly and in some cases be actually presented as a card is a, is a uh, result from an organization called AnswersInGenesis.org. And what that organization has done is, and their answer to the question is, is that is a religious one. Uh, and it's arguing against the idea that the dinosaurs uh, had actually existed as long ago as we scientifically know that they do. What that, what that organization and other organizations have been able to do is it essentially gained the analytic system. They found ways, and they've realized how, and, and savvy people know how to do this for their own web pages, to get their particular answers to questions higher up in the list of links that you're going to be presented with. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because what it shows is that unless we're reflective as people about how the actual system works, and a lot of people are not, you can find yourself steered or manipulated to think that certain answers, certain links that are higher up in the chain, and most people, studies show, don't go beyond five, the five first links mm -hmm. that are presented. Uh, you, you'll be given bad or false information just by uh, simply having manipulated the flow of information. So one of the things that I think I'm, uh, I'm pointing out here is that we re need to realize that in the old Chomskyan sense, consent can still be manufactured, but it's being manufactured by how people control the flow of information on the Internet, not so much necessarily just uh, the content. The second point I'd make about uh, how we need to be reflective about when we 
uh, search on the internet, and again, this is going to be familiar to, to, to some people, not others, is when you think about the very useful um, uh, idea uh, that's what well, we see, for example, to again pick on Google, think of Google Complete. Google Complete is their proprietary way of using their analytics to uh, allow us to fill in or it fills in for us the, 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 the search that we're doing. So we type in, for example, uh, climate change, and, and it will suggest to you, for example, climate change uh, and politics, climate change and science, climate change and hoax. And that, why, why, is, why are those particular ones going to be very, very uh, popping up uh, more than others? Because... Google has, using its analytics, seen that most people are using variations of those phrases together in their searches, and it's saying, maybe this is what you're searching for. And one of the things that can happen is, when we're searching on the Internet, we find that, oh, the Google Complete will complete our sentence or our thought for us. And if we didn't know what we were, let's say, looking for, if we didn't know much about climate change, that might bias or influence how we uh, complete our search. And those, those, again, those are facts that are not necessarily, it's not a problem with Google per se here. It's a problem with the fact that we maybe are so close to this technology right now, just like we are with our cars, that we sometimes look right through it and don't see the problems that might exist uh, with the way we are using the technology. And doesn't that go back, though, to this point of adaptability and change? If you put together a room full of millennials, most of them are going to understand what the fundamentals are of, of Google algorithms and how they work. If you put together Absolutely. a group, if you put together a group of boomers, some would, some wouldn't. I'm not sure what the percentage would be, but but isn't this a situation where over time and generational change? there is an adaptability to the understanding of how the technology works as it is with the car, and that that, that becomes the norm, and it allows us to better understand and better use that tool of technology. Yes, I think that's right. One of the things that I find speaking around the country on this topic is that uh, the younger the audience, the more receptive they are to the sorts of points that I'm making mm -hmm. about um, the internet. You know, I might think the reverse would be the true, right? True, because of course I'm coming along and saying, and of course I'm not just talking about Googling. We'll get to some of the other issues I'm sure in a minute. But the what people, what what I find is that the folks who, as it were, are closer to being digital natives, in the true sense, mm -hmm. real digital natives are people like, in my opinion, like my ten-year-old. Uh, who has never uh, really lived in a time when hasn't lived when there haven't been uh, iPads and iPhones. But the closer you are to that, uh, the more I think you're receptive to the idea that, yes, this is part of my life, and I do need to reflect on the fact that these tools can be both used for good purposes and bad purposes, and that they are a fundamental aspect of our existence now. Part of what I'm trying to get at in this reflection is that knowledge uh, is a central concept for us as we live right now. It always has been how we know. But now our economy is a knowledge economy. We talk about knowledge workers, and knowledge, of course, has always been power. It's always been power in any sort of government, and those who control it and its flow of course, have a great deal of control in the uh, culture at large. 
And so I think one of the things that is the case is that you're absolutely right. One of the things I'm trying to get us to do is to think we need to speed up the process of adaption and let make sure that we're conscious about it, uh, that it's not something that we're just letting, uh, we're just going with the flow and not thinking about the responsibility that comes with changing how we live our lives uh, with regard to such something as central as how we acquire, distribute, and uh, consume knowledge. And one of the aspects of this is kind of counterintuitive. When the Internet first came along, there was, as, as you well know, lots of talk about the long tail, the fact that, that the Internet would allow us to explore so many new places, so many different and obscure things that might interest us. In fact, precisely the opposite has happened. You talk about isolated tribes, confirmation bias, that in fact yes. we tend to gravitate towards those things that simply reaffirm whatever our, our predisposition is as opposed to really take advantage of that long tail. I think that's exactly right, and this is one of the things that uh, I think has surprised many of us, and but doesn't, let's say, it turns out, surprise a lot of people who, as I said, are closer to being digital natives, mm -hmm. even if maybe they don't... Uh, uh, even if they don't obviously think about it every day, like a philosopher might. I think that um, one of the things that I think, as you said, is incredibly important and interesting to notice here is this paradoxical element. We have more information available to us than ever before. Right now, I and you and I and all the listeners have more information at our fingertips uh, literally than uh, anyone has ever had um, uh, before in uh, the history of humanity. And that's an amazing thing. But what is funny about it is that it's actually led us to be what I would say is called epistemically overconfident. Epistemic meaning having to do with knowledge. We tend to think that because we have all this information at hand, that when we form beliefs, we can for a couple different reasons, we can tend to think because we have this information, we know more than we actually do. One reason for that is very simple, because we think that, well, if, uh, if uh, we announce on some subject or we hear somebody else announcing on it, we think, well, we can confirm that right away or disconfirm it. And in some cases, of course, we can. But in other cases, uh, we, the, the second reason that we tend to be overconfident is the, the one that you focused on, which is that we, as is well known, on the Internet, we play with our friends and ignore uh, those who have different sorts of views. Those of us on the left favor uh, certain blogs and news sources. Those of us on the right favor different blogs and different news sources. And as a result, we come to, we've, we're now in a position, I think, where much of, many of our disagreements in culture, let's say over evolution or climate change, um, are disagreements not just about our values, not just about the facts, but are also disagreements about whose way of figuring out what the facts are is correct. That is, whose sources of evidence are reliable and whose aren't. And when you get to disagreements of that sort, when you get down to the point that we're actually disagreeing over whose sources of information are reliable, it's really difficult to move past that. Because any evidence I, if we are disagreeing about something like that, any evidence I start to give to show that my sources are more reliable, of course, are going to rely on my sources. And you're going to say, you're biased.
And so we have a way of using the, all this information at our hand to actually that we have to actually just start reinforcing our own positions. And that puts us in a sort of terrifying crisis of figuring out what's really true. And as a result, I think some people have started to think that paradoxically again, that despite the fact that we have all this information, that the, act, the truth is actually harder to figure out. And then we see in some cases in the political scene right now, some people actually not really feeling that the truth is very important at all. Right. And that, I think, is from both a philosophical and a political uh, standpoint, uh, really bad. Right. I mean, it runs counter to what Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said to someone, that they were entitled to their own opinion, but they weren't entitled to their own facts. Exactly. And right now it seems like in, increasingly in our culture, uh, despite the fact that we have all these facts at our disposal, people feel entitled to their own facts. Talk about the degree to which all of this is is further reinforced. You touched on it by by the whole idea of social media, which further enhances this idea of kind of mob mentality almost online. So I think that um, social media uh, is um, interesting for uh, with regard to knowledge for a couple different reasons. One, of course, it's a way of by engaging in social media we can fall into the trap that we were talking about before, which is only passing information back and forth between those of us who already agree with us. The other thing that's interesting philosophically about social media and how we're using it now is that we use it as a type of identity construction. Um, we philosophers for a long time have sort of thought of identity as something like a, a narrative that we tell ourselves and others. Um, and as in that sense, our identity, our sense of self, uh, what matters to us is constructed by our social relationships with each other. Much of that social, con that identity construction, of course, is now happening online. And one of the things that's really interesting about it, however, is that when we think about the fact that we talk about, you know, uh, that we share so much more and where people worry about the fact that, oh, we're, we're sharing all this information that we wouldn't share before, and that is, those are worries that we should have. And it's also, <laughs> people overlook the fact that a lot of what we share with each other, we're doing to construct a certain identity. We want to tweet those things that make us look a certain way. We want to Facebook those pictures, put on Facebook, I do this too, that, you know, sort of portray us in a particular way. And if people are honest, they'll realize that that's the case. So one of the things that's sort of odd about that is that we're engaged in this constant and rapid process of identity construction. But it's also a sort of manipulation that we're all engaging in with each other. And so I think when you think, see political candidates now, like Donald Trump, who are masters of social media, we see that, in a sense, people are sort of receptive to the fact that he seems to be uh, constructing alternate realities as he moves forward on his Twitter account. Uh, but, you know, that's something that we're familiar with everyone doing. So, in a sense, it seems as real or, or authentic as the rest of our behavior. I mean, it's the old joke about politicians that the first thing they have to learn is how to fake authenticity. 
Yes, well, <laughs> that's, that, that's right. And uh, some people are better at that than others. It is frightening in that sense because we've always had the idea of the individual constructing their identity, whether it was you know Jay Gadsby or whoever it might be. The ability to do that within the context of social media and online today has frightening consequences because of the speed at which it can happen and because of the ability to do it so effectively. Yes, that's right. I mean, speed is uh, a big part of the change in information processing that we're undergoing. Um, but uh, it's not just uh, uh, speed. It's also the sense of the fact that this, uh, this, the speed at which we can dispense and consume information right now is being done, as I said, in this intimate way, increasingly intimate way, that we don't even notice. That is, we are... Uh, so used to engaging in this sort of uh, back and forth online or accessing information and having an immediate, uh, in an immediate sense, the speed again. But that, that intimacy, that sort of ease of use, that transparency, the seamlessness of our digital life uh, and its integration with the rest of our life, that's what I think uh, can get us to overlook some of the things that uh, sort of the more dangerous aspects of our digital life uh, and just focus on the convenience. What breaks the cycle? What enables us to be more self-aware of those aspects of digital life that you're talking about as opposed to becoming more and more subsumed by it? I think what breaks the cycle is reflecting on what our values are and reflecting on what sorts of knowledge we really want to consume, produce, uh, and distribute. We want to reflect on the fact that when we know in the deepest sense, we're actually doing something I'd call understanding. And understanding is the ability to see not just uh, know a list of facts, know the answer to a question, but know why that answer is the right answer to be able to put that answer together with other answers into a bigger picture. I mean, this is a sort of, in a sense, an obvious fact, but gra coming to understand something requires hard work. It's an achievement, and it requires digging around, acquiring certain critical skills. And we need to remember that when we're using technology, we want to find platforms for using technology that are encourage the use of those skills and uh, the, uh, encourage the acquisition of understanding, but uh, and don't just uh, sort of make us more passive receivers of information. Isn't the core of this really reworking and rethinking how we teach, how we educate young people in this, in this Internet culture? I think it is, and education cannot be overlooked as uh, a key, uh, well, in fact, the essential aspect for any way of shaping uh, better knowers. If we want to become more responsible knowers, uh, people who understand and not just have uh, Google knowledge, we need to start with how we educate, not just young people, but old people like myself. <laughs> Michael Patrick Lynch, the book is The Internet of Us. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.